In last week's section, we saw the Apostle Paul tell the Corinthian church what would happen if they didn't have self-control going alongside of their Christian liberty. They would just be using their liberty freelessly, aimlessly, and be offending people along the way, and their life would not be pleasing to God. And Paul used, to illustrate this point, Paul used the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. Remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they wandered in the desert for how long? 40 years. They wandered for 40 years. They witnessed the power of God. They witnessed the provision of God. They saw the protection of God, and they even saw the glory of God. They saw all these magnificent attributes of God, yet we read last week many of their lives were unpleasing to the Lord. Their lives were still unpleasing. They had an unbelievable encounter with God, but the way they lived, it was unpleasing. And then Paul went on to tell us what the problem was in their life. He told us their life was filled with lust, idolatry, sexual immorality, the tempting of Christ, and lastly, he said, complaining. He talked about all those things. As a result of those things, it says most of them, it being the scripture, says most of them died in the wilderness. And that was quite an understatement because how many went into the promised land? Two. Two of the adult males of Israel that left Egypt, only two, Joshua and Caleb, made it into the promised land. Only two. And now as we come to verse 12 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we must remember what Paul's still talking about. Remember, way back in chapter 8, he introduced a subject and he talked about eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And we talked about, I know that's not a problem in our culture today. Paul wouldn't write to the church in Cumberland and say, hey, you guys got to quit eating meat sacrificed to idols. But we talked about the, the premise that he was teaching is that people were using their Christian liberty in the wrong way. And they were, people, they were offending other believers in the process. So we're going to take a look as Paul's going to give us this morning. First, he's going to give us a warning, and then he's going to talk to us about how we should deal with temptation in our life. And I think that is going to be very practical for us. So if you'll pick up with me in verse 12, I'm going to read the first two verses, chapter, verse 12 and verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10, and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. So 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation he will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He begins with the word therefore. I've taught you that every time you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what's it there for? It makes a link between what he's about to tell you back to what he has already told you. It links the two things together. And Paul provides us with this warning. He says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, Paul understood that as he talked about the Israelites and he talked about the life that was unpleasing to God, that there would be people that go, well, that's not me. That's not me. That's not my life. All those things that you read, Rob, that lust, I don't have that problem. That's not me. Paul would say, be careful, Christian, because you think you're standing, that might be the very place that you will fall next. This verse speaks of our vulnerability. We're vulnerable to these things. Maybe not today, maybe not at this moment, but in the future, in the past, you'll probably find that in one of those areas, if not all of them, your life is vulnerable to them. And you might have an attitude, well, I'm not doing it right now. Rob, we're not tempted to eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's not our issue. We don't want to go to the pagan temples. We don't even have any pagan temples like that. Oh, yes, we do. We don't even know what you're talking about, Rob. Why, why, why is this even important to us? We don't have this problem. That's the attitude Paul's warning us of. 
That's the attitude that says, I've got it all under control. I can handle the situation. I don't do that anymore. It's not a problem for me. The things that you've been tempted in the past, if God has granted you deliverance from them, be very, very careful because they will come up again in your future. It might not be every day, but you will see that temptation again. The first step to standing upright before the Lord and not falling into sin is to realize I am vulnerable. You see, when you don't think you're vulnerable to something, you're not on guard against it. When you're not on guard against it, it's the very place the enemy can get through the walls that you've built, the security that you've built. When you look at some sin in some life and somebody else, I would never do that. That would be, should be a warning to you. When you say, I would never, ever, ever do such a thing. I would never go to that place. I would never say those things. The Lord would say, especially the Apostle Paul, be careful, Christian. That might be the place that you're going to fall. I might have freedom from it now, but it doesn't mean I'll never be tempted to go back to it. You might have been set free for the moment. You think, I'd never do that. I'd never get there. But in a weak moment, you'd be surprised at what the enemy will throw at you. He'll throw at you. He'll tell you things that aren't true. If your attitude is, I'm not worried about those things. I'm I'm a mature believer. I don't do those things. I'll never fall into something like that again. Paul says, you think you're standing, but that's the very place that you're going to fall. Be very, very careful you're not prepared. Our greatest threat as believers is from the attacks that we're not prepared for. That's where your greatest threat lies. You see, when, as you're walking with the Lord, you have certain areas. That's a danger zone for me. I don't go there. I don't think about that. I don't do that. But when I think that's not a problem, I'm guarding here, but I'm not paying attention to what's going on over here. The greatest threat is going to come from the attacks we're not prepared for. We must realize we're vulnerable to these things. We must acknowledge and admit to ourselves your weakness. Where your weaknesses lie. That's the, this is a, if, if overconfidence is a weakness. Thinking I can handle something that I can't handle is a weakness. We must admit those, those to ourselves. It's a much better position for us to remain standing in the Lord than to think we've got it all. We've got it all under control. I like what Adam Clark said. He said this. He said, the highest saint under heaven can stand no longer than he depends upon God and continues in the obedience of faith. He that ceases to do so will fall into sin and get a darkened understanding and a hardened heart. You see, it's the Lord that we have to depend upon to stand. Not our own ability, not not the past, not our past successes. They're not going to help you in the future. Just because we stand upright, though, doesn't mean that we're not tempted. Anybody out there ever face temptation? Say every day. Sometimes all day long. One, One after the other. That's what happens. When you're tempted, be careful you don't classify your temptation as only your temptation. It's not just you that gets tempted in that way. You see, sometimes we're tempted against things you go, I wouldn't want anybody to know that I'm tempted against that. You're not the only one. Satan doesn't want you to know that other people are tempted in the same ways you are. He wants you to think that you're different and there's something wrong with you and that there's a problem with you. They just don't know how hard your life is. They just don't understand what you're going through. Paul says this, look at verse 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is, what's that word? Common to man. Such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. There's four important points in that verse. There's four things I want you to see. Number one, your temptation is just like everybody else's. Number two, God is faithful. Number three, there's always a way out. And number four, you can always bear it. You can always bear it. 
He says, your temptation is just like everyone else. Paul put it this way. He said, no temptation has overtaken you, such as is common to man. The temptation you're going to face tomorrow, this afternoon, it's not unique. The stuff you're going through today, it's the same. Many, many people sitting right next to you in this room have gone through many of the same things. You're, you're not unique. Don't let it isolate you. It's common to man, Paul says. It's normal. It's common. Many men and women of God, the things that they face and are facing, they're, they're, we're all tempted in the same ways when you get down to the true root of the temptation. It might manifest in our lives in different ways. Idolatry can be a temptation, and it's going to look different in different people's lives, but it's still the temptation of idolatry or the temptation of lust or, or whatever the temptation. It's going to look differently, but it's still the same temptation. Please remember these two things about temptation. Number one, it's not a sin to be tempted. Don't think you've fallen just because you're tempted. Don't think that you've sinned against the Lord just because you have a thought that runs through your mind or because you have something, you're thinking in your mind something, I can't even believe I'm thinking such a thing. It's not a sin. It doesn't become a sin until you act upon it. It's not, it's not, a, it's not sinful until you do something about it. You're going to have thoughts. You're going to have things that cross your mind. But what do you do with those thoughts? Romans would tell us to take every thought captive and renew our mind. You see, if you start entertaining that thought, if you start figuring out how can I make that happen, well, what, what would it be like if I did that? Oh, that would be kind of cool, or that would be kind of fun, or then it becomes sin. But merely the temptation itself is not sin. To have a bad thought is not sin. It's what you do with that thought. Do you ponder it? Do you think about it? Do you go back to it later? Do you tell other people about it? That's when it becomes sin. It's not, it's not sin just to have a thought or a temptation. It's not sin to be tempted. Number two, the strength to overcome temptation is found only in the Lord. That's how you overcome temptation. It's in the Lord. While we're called to be disciplined like an athlete training for a competition, when it comes to temptation towards sin, we need the Lord's strength to overcome. Yes, there's a part of it that's our self-control, but there's also a part of the Holy Spirit's power within us to be able to say no to ourselves. He's the one that sets us free from ourselves. The, the, the discipline or self-control on our part is only part of the equation. We must have a desire to please God. It must be your heart to please God. The willingness to discipline our bodies and, and the help of the Holy Spirit to overcome and not allow the temptation to go through the temptation is what we're looking for. But we also need the word of God. You need the word of God in your life as well. When Jesus was tempted in the desert, when he was tempted in the desert, he turned to the scriptures to correct the lies that Satan was telling him. That's how he overcame the temptation. We must do the same thing. Satan wants to manipulate the word of God in your life. The temptation that you're feeling, the lies that you're believing, need to be replaced with the truths of God's word. Back in the Garden of Eden, did God really say? Isn't that what Satan said to Eve? In the, when Jesus was tempted in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the desert, how did he correct it? It is written. No, no, you're misquoting the word of God to me, Satan. You're misquoting the word. If we don't know the word of God, we can't use the word of God as a weapon against us, against any temptation that's coming near us. If we have a misunderstanding, we believe the truth that doesn't exist in the word of God. There's so many truths out there that don't even exist in God's word that we've just made up in our own mind. There's, there's sayings and cliches that we've got to. And we'll get to a few of them in just a minute. But the second thing Paul told us in verse 13, underline, write it on your heart, don't forget it, God is faithful. He's faithful. Even if you're faithless, he remains faithful. Temptation doesn't come from the Lord, but the Lord will be faithful in the temptation. I like to say it this way. Everything is father filtered. Yeah. 
It's got to filter through the Father. In other words, the Lord is filtering what's taking place in your life. If it were up to Satan, he would destroy you immediately. He wants to see you crushed. If you don't believe me, read the first two chapters of Job. If you still don't believe me, remember what Jesus said to Peter in Luke chapter 22. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. He wants to crush you, Peter. He wants to destroy you. And what did, you, what did he go on to say? He said, but I have prayed for you. I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Satan wants to destroy you this morning, but God won't let him. God's not going to let him. The Lord defines the boundaries which he can operate. The Lord is the one that says, Satan, you can only go this far. You can only take it this far. You can only do it this much. That this, is the, this is the boundary. Whatever temptation you face, you can know the Lord has allowed it to happen, but you can also know that the Lord is faithful in the temptation. Whatever circumstance, whatever situation, whatever trial, you can know the Lord knows it's taking place and he's going to do something through it with you. He's going to walk through it with you. But why would the Lord allow temptation in our life? You know, I don't really like that, Rob. I think if he was a God that loved me, he would just take it all away. There'd be no more difficulty. There'd be no more trials. There'd be none of that stuff. Why, doesn't he, why, does, why is that even there? I suspect it's because he wants to show us what's inside of us. If you remember your school days, your teacher gave you a test. She, would, she or he would teach you the information, and then they gave you a test. Why? Because they wanted to know if you knew the information. You see, the Lord already knows what you know. He already knows what's inside of you. Who does he want to show the results of the test to? To you. He, give, he will allow a trial, allow a temptation, so that we can see what's inside of us. Well, why would he need to do that? Because we're not very good at evaluating ourselves. Sometimes... We think too highly of ourselves. Oh, I got it. No problem with me. I'm good. I'm spiritually mature. Walking with the Lord. No problem. Praise Jesus. Any other Christian words you want me to define for you? I got it all. Other times we think too lowly of ourselves. Oh, God couldn't use somebody like me. I'm just a broken down sinner. I don't, you know, I just keep blowing it. God does. I don't even know why he likes me. He's probably, I probably, that was the last straw. I'm done. He doesn't want anything to do with me. You see, we're not very good at evaluating ourselves. And sometimes we evaluate ourselves based on the person sitting next to us. You look at the person sitting next to you or across the room and, and, and you look around and you go, oh, well, they're, they're way too spiritual. I don't want to, not them. I'm going to compare myself to this person over here. And I can look at their life and go, well, at least I'm not like them. At least I'm not doing what they're doing. They're not the standard. Christ is the standard. The scriptures are the standard. It doesn't matter how you're doing compared to him or her or, or this person or that person. It's how are we doing before the Lord? And we all fall short of the glory of God. We all need the blood of Christ. That's what we all need. Why would the Lord allow temptation to show us what's inside of us? He already knows what's in our heart, but we need to see what's in our hearts. And you say, well, I'm better than this person. I'm better than that person. Are you really? Are you really? How do we really compare ourselves to one another? Yet we so often do it. How is it really fair to look at somebody's life and go, well, at least I'm not as bad off as they are. We really don't know what's going on in somebody else's life, do we? We don't know what's going on in their heart. We don't know the path that they're on. We don't know what took them to get there. We'll say, I want to be like this person. Well, do you want to go through what they went through? I want to be like the Apostle Paul. Do you really? You want to take the beatings and the prison sentences and all that kind of stuff? You, you, is that what, no, no, no. I just want the fame that he has. I just want this aspect of his life. I just want to be well-known. Oh, there's a sin involved in that, isn't it? I just want to be prideful. I just want to have a reason to brag. 
Temptation is not to show God what's inside of us, it's to show us who we really are. And it's in our temptation that we'll see either I successfully navigated that temptation with Christ or I failed it and I need to repent and get back with the Lord. Brings us to our third point. He says this, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able to bear. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able to bear. This verse is often misquoted. Maybe you've heard it. It usually is misquoted something like this. God will never give you more than you can handle. That's how it's often said. Well, God will never, if he, he'll never give me more than I can handle. That's a misrepresentation of what this, what, what this verse says. It doesn't say that at all. This verse is speaking about temptation, not about, not about the natural consequences of sin. This verse isn't speaking about death and sickness and disease and consequences of sins, mistakes that I make, things like that. It's, not talk, it's talking about temptation. In fact, I believe the opposite is true. I believe God will give you more than you can handle. You say, why? Because he wants you to turn to him. Because if you can handle it, you don't need him. How many of us came to Christ because we had more than we can handle and we had nowhere else to turn? You see, I think God will give you more, not in a desire to break you, but in a desire to bring you to him. He doesn't want to crush you. He wants to bring you to him. And he'll bring you right to the point where you go, I, I can't handle it. And he goes, great, come give it to me. Give your burdens to me. My burden is easy, my yoke is light. Let me carry it for a while. You just walk along with me and know that I've got it under control. You quit stressing about the problem and the situation. Give it to me, let me handle it. You see, that's when you connect with him. That's the temptation of life, the difficulty. Whatever circumstance leads you to that place, it can be things going wrong in your life. It's, you're crushed in. And the Lord says, just give it to me. Just know that if you walk with me faithfully, it is well with your soul. Stand on the rock. Come on, we'll, we'll navigate this together. I'll be the one in charge. You be the one that follows. Let's just do this together. See the hope that lies in that? There's hopelessness when you've got to figure it out yourself. But when the Lord says, I'll take it. I know it's painful that you lost a loved one. I know it's painful the relationship's not working. I know it's painful your kids are prodigals. I know it's painful that I know these things are going on, but will you just give it to me? Will you entrust me to handle it? You see, I believe that he will give us more than we can handle, but so he'll bring us to him. And know this, there is nothing that you can't handle without the Lord. Let me say it again. Whatever you're going through, there is nothing that you can't handle without the Lord. If you want to do it on your own, it's going to hurt. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy with the Lord. Doesn't mean it's not painful. But there's nothing that you can't handle without him. John MacArthur, one of the guys that I like to read, he wrote this. He said, this verse is speaking of tempting the basic meaning of temptation is simply to test or to prove and has no negative connotation. When it becomes a proof of righteousness or an inducement to evil depends on our response. If we resist the temptation in God's power, it is a test that proves our faithfulness. If we do not resist, it becomes a solicitation to sin. The Bible uses the term in both ways, and I believe that Paul has both meanings in mind here. You see, the temptation, what do you do with it? That's what the, or do you use it to resist or do you give into it? With the power of God, you don't have to give into it. You don't have to give in. Brings us to our final point there in verse 13. It says, God will always make a way out that you may be able to bear it. I want you to realize there's a lot of people that miss that last section of the verse. They always say, well, God will always give you a way out. They never quote that last part. What's the last part say? 
that you may be able to bear it. The verse is not saying that God will make a way for the temptation to just go away. He's not saying that he'll give you an excuse to leave a certain circumstance. This verse is saying the way out of the temptation is to go through the temptation, to bear the temptation. God desire, God's desire is that you bear it. Your Lord and Savior will carry you through it together successfully. It's not just that all of a sudden I'll get a phone call in the middle of the temptation. That's my way out. God says, no, we are going to walk through this temptation together and you are going to bear it. Did Jesus leave the desert early? No, he went through all of it and the Lord sustained him through all of it. It's not getting out of the temptation. It's going through the temptation. It's going through the trial. Uh, listen to how one commentator puts it. He says this. He says, the phrase away is formed by the definite article and a singular noun. In other words, there's only one way. There's only one way to handle the temptation. The way of escape from every temptation, no matter what it is, is the same. It is through it. You go through it. Whether we have a test by God to prove our righteousness or a test by Satan to induce to sin, there is only one way we can pass the test. We escape temptation not by getting out of it, by passing through it. You don't get out of taking your test early in school. You've never taken the test. You go through it. God does not take us out. He sees us through by making us able to endure it. He wants to take you through it, and he wants to help you endure whatever it is you're facing. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness? The Father's will led him there, right? He was led there by the, by the Spirit, led into the wilderness by the Spirit, and he did not leave until the temptation was complete, until it was over, until it was done. He escaped the temptation by enduring, by bearing up the temptation with his Father's strength, with the power of the Holy Spirit. It's going through it. You're going to face temptation in this world, in this life. You need to understand that with the power of God, you can bear up during the temptation. You don't have to give in to the temptation. Now, there are two very important things we need in the face of temptation. Faith and prayer. Faith and prayer. Faith and prayer. We need to believe God's word is true and the power of God is greater than our temptation. You need to believe in God's word, and you need to believe that the power of God is greater than your temptation. Second, just like Jesus told the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, pray so that you would not enter into temptation. We must do the exact same thing. Pray. You need to believe that the power of God is greater than my temptation, and you need to believe in prayer. Satan is going to come at you with lies, and it's usually going to be twisted scriptures. He's going to come at you with rationalization. He's going to come at you with justification. He's going to come out with you excuses. Whatever it is he's going to come after you with, you have to replace those lies with the truth of God's word. He attacked Eve. Did God really say? He attacked Jesus, even in the wilderness, with false things about God's word. It, he wasn't giving the whole truth. He wasn't coming across the whole way. He wasn't giving him everything that he needed. He was just taking the word of God and twisting it to what he wanted it to say. That's something we need to be careful of as Christians. But you're not going to know that unless you know God's word. You see, if you don't know what God's word says, I can stand up here and tell you whatever I think it says, and you're going to go, uh-huh, yeah, right, uh-huh. God will never give you more than he can handle. Wait a minute, pastor, that's not what the verse says. It says God's going to bear me up into temptation. It says God's going to carry me through it. That's, good. That, that's what that verse says. Now look at verse 14. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 
Paul told us about lust and sexual immorality and the testing of the Lord and idolatry. They told us they're all outright sins. He told us there's no Christian liberty in, uh, in committing these things, that they were unpleasing to the Lord. And now Paul turns his focus specifically to idolatry. And did you notice his command? He says, flee. He says, run away. Get away from it as fast as you can. Don't stick around. Don't ask questions. Get away from it. And I know the question becomes, well, what really is idolatry? Right? We don't have pagan temples where they're sacrificing steaks to idols. If we did, we'd call it a buffet and we'd go there and eat. We don't have that going on. What are you talking about idolatry? I ran across this definition of idolatry. Idolatry includes much more than bowing down or burning incense to a physical image. Idolatry is having any false god, any object, idea, philosophy, any habit, occupation, sport, or whatever has one's primary concern and loyalty. Anything that has your focus, anything that has your loyalty over the Lord, or that to any degree decreases one's trust in and loyalty to the Lord. If there's something you're spending time doing and it's decreasing your trust in the Lord, it can be idolatry. Remember what idolatry, it's not just making an image and bowing down to it. It's even worshiping the true God falsely is idolatry. Creating God in your own image, deciding you're going to tell God what to do. You're going to tell him how he should respond in your life. You're going to tell him what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. That's idolatry in your life. You're recreating God into somebody you want him to be. You see, when we want to come before the Lord rightly and correctly, we need to realize he's God. I'm not. He's the creator. I'm the creation. He's the one in control. I'm not. But when we want to remake him, we want to tell him that he's messing up my life and he's allowing things to happen he shouldn't be and and why won't he do this and if you love me, God, you'd do that. That's not who God is. That's idolatry. You're, you're, You're trying to make him who you want him to be. Paul wants to focus here as we come into the next few verses. He wants to focus back to the original question he was answering way back in chapter eight. I know it's been a number of weeks The original question went something like this. Is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Remember the Corinthian church, they were doing that. They had groups of Christian believers that were going to the pagan temples, enjoying a steak dinner with their neighbors and saying it's no big deal. And they they had some rationalization that went something like this. They said, listen, here's our thought process behind this. We realize that there's a pagan god, and we'll just we'll name pagan god, we'll just use Zeus for an example. We realize that Zeus doesn't really exist, right? There's no such thing as Zeus. So if they think that they're worshiping Zeus, they're worshiping something that doesn't exist, and because he doesn't exist, it's okay for us to go because we're not really worshiping alongside of them. It's just a figment of their imagination. He only exists in the mind of the worshiper. He doesn't exist in my mind, so it's okay for me to go eat their meat and partake of their meal with them. That's exactly what they were doing. Look what Paul says in verse 15. He says, I speak as to wise men. But what did the Greeks love? They loved wisdom, right? Look what he tells them. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Now I realize you might read that and go, I don't understand what he's talking about. That doesn't make any sense to me. Let me explain it to you. Paul's going to make a point, but before he makes a point, he's going to give them two examples. 
He's going to first use New Testament communion. And the second thing, he's going to use a sacrifice uh, that the Israelites would have made, the way that they would have done their sacrifices. And essentially, he asked this. As, as believers, aren't we all one body of Christ? We might have different churches, but there's only one body of Christ, right? We would say, oh, yeah, that's, that's true. When we share in communion together, aren't we sharing in that body and the blood of Christ together? Aren't we sharing, you know, we're, we're communing together. We're communing with him. We're doing it corporately. We're doing it together. Oh, yeah, that's true. And although we're individuals, we're all individual people, we're all part of that one body because we've come together and taken communion together, right? You guys would say, okay, that, that makes sense. Well, his second example, he goes to the nation Israel. He says, the nation Israel. When they gave a free will, and I'm going I'm to share a little more than he does because he, there's some understanding here. When they gave a free will offering or a peace offering, and they would take that offering, they would put part of that offering on the altar to burn. When it was cooked, part of that, altar would, part of that offering would go to the priest to eat, and part of it would go back to the person making the offering. So they would sit together in the temple, and they would partake of that together. In other words, Paul's making, are those who eat the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Aren't you partaking of that altar when you eat of the sacrifices that you're offering to God? And the answer to that question would be yes, of course we are. Now look what he does, look what he says in verse 19. He's going to make it clear. Clear as muddy water, you ready? What am I saying then? Because that's what they would all have been asking too. That an idol is anything, or what is offered to an idol is anything? Rather, look at verse 20, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Oh, he just made a bridge there. He just made a connection to false gods and demonic influence. He's already acknowledged the idols being worshipped by the pagan temples don't exist. But what's he saying is this. Here's what he's saying there. Although the pagan deity might not exist in their mind, there's a demon or a demonic spirit behind what they're worshiping. Oh, it might be a pagan temple ascribing worship to Zeus who doesn't exist, but there's a demon or Satan or a demonic influence behind that very thing that's being worshiping. When you exercise your Christian liberty by attending one of these pagan feasts, he says you're actually fellowshipping with demons. Remember their argument, it doesn't exist, therefore we couldn't be fellowshipping with anybody. He says, oh, but you are. You're fellowshipping with demons. You say, Rob, I don't like this demon stuff. Don't talk about this. No, don't be fooled. Demons can exhibit considerable power, supernatural power. They can, be th they can, they can do things. I personally believe that there are many religious experiences that people ascribe to the Holy Spirit that are actually demonic. I personally believe that. I believe there's many things that people say, they go through, people say they experience, and they're, they, they're experiencing something spiritual, but I don't think it's the Holy Spirit. This past week, I watched a video on YouTube of a church service, and I'll give you an example here. I watched a video on YouTube, and there was a girl on the video, and she was a young lady, and she, was, she had this uncontrollable twitching. Like she, was, she just kept standing there like, 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 like her arm and her head and her whole body was just kind of twitching, almost like, a, like, like there was something wrong with her. And I watched as the pastor ascribed this, this is the Holy Spirit in her. This is the Holy Spirit coming upon her. And, the, and this, apparently this went on for two hours. Now, I didn't watch it that long, but I, I, that's what he said. It's been going on for two hours that this, this girl has been doing this. He attributed her twitching to the Holy Spirit. But was it really the Lord doing it? I, I, I don't believe so. And let me tell you why I don't believe so. One of three things were happening to this young lady. Either she was faking it, but that would be kind of hard to do for two hours, but that's a possibility. Number two, maybe she had a medical condition that was being exploited by the pastor. 
Maybe she had an uncontrollable twitching that was something medically that was causing her to do that, and the pastor was just using it to make it look like it was some spiritual power. Or number three, it may have been some sort of demonic activity masquerading as the Holy Spirit. It's possible it could have been that. Well, why couldn't it have been the Holy Spirit, Rob? How do you know? Because her condition goes against what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. When I want to know how the Holy Spirit operates, I look to the scriptures to see that. And nowhere do I see anybody twitching. And if I do, Jesus is healing them, not bringing it upon them. Instead, what I see is I read Galatians 5.22, which talks about the fruit of the Spirit in somebody's life. And one of those fruits is self-control. So how do you take self-control and put it to something that's not in self-control and say that's the Holy Spirit? It doesn't make sense to me. When we look for the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, we look to the scriptures to define it for us. If it goes outside of that, i got to really scratch my head. Not saying that that couldn't be God, but I'm really going, why would he, that doesn't make any sense. Why does he say it's self-control here, but then over there it can happen, this is going on. That would leave me questioning what, what spirit is involved here. Not to mention, how would her twitching bring glory to God? What, what, what is that doing? What is that teaching the people of God? If she's not really able to control these things, and if she wasn't really able to control it, and, and I certainly can't tell if she's faking or not from a video, either she developed a medical condition while she was there, or she's under the power of some spirit, but I don't believe it was the Holy Spirit. I don't believe it was. We don't see that, we don't see that for us in Scripture. And please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that anybody with a twitch that they can't control is under demonic influence. If your eyelid starts to flutter, or you get a muscle spasm, don't think, oh, I got a demonic thing going on. That's not the case. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying in that particular incidence, they were claiming this woman was under the power of the Holy Spirit, and I believe she was under the power of a spirit, but I just don't believe it was the Holy Spirit. And back to my original point, I think there's sometimes demonic power will manifest itself within churches, within churches as the Holy Spirit, if they don't recognize it, if they don't know the Word of God, and they go outside of the parameters laid down by the Word of God, you're getting into very, very dangerous territory. Look what Paul says in verse 21, and we'll talk more about it in just a minute. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul's not giving advice, he's stating a fact. He's stating a fact. Even Jesus made it clear when he said we cannot serve two masters. It's going to be one or the other. When we fellowship with the Lord, we cannot also fellowship with demons. Some attempted in Corinth. They were trying that. They were going back and forth. But they were not truly fellowshipping with the Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul's saying. You might think you're fellowshipping with the Lord, but if you're off fellowshipping with demonic stuff, you're, you're, you're missing it somewhere. You can't have both. It's not both in your life. Their worship was hypocrisy. That's a scary thought. How could someone think they're fellowshipping with the Lord but not be? How could, that, how could that possibly happen? Oh, they believed they were fellowshipping in the Lord. But see, their fellowship with the Lord was idolatry. It was based on what they wanted the Lord to be. Understand something as Christians. We are not free from the influence of demons. Let me make this very, very, very clear to you. We are not free from the influence of demons. I do not believe that a Christian... A believer in Jesus Christ can be demonically possessed. I believe when you accept Jesus Christ, he moves into your body, he moves into your heart, he lives and resides in you. There is no other demon that's going to move in next door to him. Maybe in the next body, but not within you. He doesn't move out so Satan can move in. And I know that maybe you've heard, you know, the, the demon of this, or the demon of that. I don't subscribe to that. I don't believe in that. I don't believe that as a, as a believer in Jesus Christ, my body is not open to be possessed 
by demons. However, I do believe that we can be involved or around or influenced by demonic activity. And let me give you an example. When we willingly, when we willingly ignore the Lord's way, when we willingly say, I'm, not, I'm ignoring the Lord's way, and we flirt with the things of Satan, we flirt in the spiritual world where we shouldn't be setting up idols of any kind, we open ourselves up to demonic influence. If you have a barbecue after church today and you pull out a Ouija board and you start asking the spirits questions and you start putting your hands on that thing and you start running around looking for letters, you don't think you're opening yourself up to dem demonic possession? No, demonic influence? Absolutely. You don't think you're getting into places that you shouldn't be? If you go to get your fortune read and then she pulls out the tarot cards and she calls upon the spirits of old, you don't think you're opening yourself up to something there? I think you are. You don't think when you're, you're, you're looking at those, even, even as far as the horoscope would go, it's astrology. You're opening yourself up to the reading of the stars and all those kinds of things. I would say be careful. You're opening yourselves up to those things. When we willingly ignore the Lord's way and we flirt with the things of Satan, by setting up idols of any kind, we open ourselves up. Remember, let me, let me put it to you this way. In rebuking Ananias, remember Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts? Uh, they, they had some property and they, they sold the property. They were going to give the money to the church. But they decided, well, we're not going to tell the church how much we really sold it for. We're going to tell them part we're, we're, because we want to keep the rest for ourselves. We're, we don't want to tell them, we don't want to give them everything. Here's what happened. Here's what Peter said to them. He said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? It's their idol of greed. Their idol was greed. We want the money for us. We don't want to give it to the Lord. We want it for us. He and his wife, Sapphira, left themselves open to being influenced or tempted by the chief of the demons, Satan himself, through greed the idol of greed. I want the money. I, we're only going to tell the church we, got, we sold it for this much. That way we can keep the rest. It was greed. Paul even tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. You might have this memorized. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. If you don't think Satan's out to destroy you, read that one again. That's who you're wrestling against. It's clear from our wrestling with demons there is some sort of contact between believers and those vile fallen angels. There's some connection there. Now I realize that that can be scary for some people. Idolatry can masquerade as Christianity. And to prevent this from happening, we must cling to the word of God. That's where our truth lies. That's where the truth doesn't change. One of the enemy's most effective strategies is to manipulate the word of God. To make you think it says something it doesn't say. Like we said earlier, God will never give you more than he can handle. Now, he'll never give you more than you can handle. What does that say? That says, I can handle everything. That says, I can handle it all. I don't need God. I got this. God's never going to give me more than I can handle. Wouldn't that be like Satan to tell that to you in your ear? You're going through a difficult situation and Satan whispers, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. And you're going, all right, I can handle this. And, Lord, and the Lord's up there going, oh, if you just give it to me, I'll take care of it. If you'll just, just turn it over to me, let me handle it. Just put your faith and your trust in me. Let me take it off your plate. I'll work it all out. I'll work through it. Just trust me in it. You don't have to be stressed over it. No, no, God will never give you more than you can handle. You see how the word of God can be manipulated into something that's not true? You could bear, be bearing burdens you don't have to bear. And God said, I'll, I'll take it. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. Will you, will you let me handle it for you? That's what he's talking about here. Now, if this talk of demons... And I know we're not going to go into it too much because the truth is we don't know a whole lot about it. But if this talk of demons scares you and you're not a Christian, good. You should be scared. You should be freaked out. 
You should be wondering what's going to happen tonight after you close your eyes. You should be wondering all that kind of stuff. It should, it, should, it should freak you out, but I want you to know something. There's peace, there's hope in the blood of Jesus Christ. If the talk of demons scares you and you are a Christian, maybe you've had some sort of encounter or you've had some things happen, I want to remind you of what James says in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you are of God, little children, and you've overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As Christians, we don't need to concern ourselves with the demonic activity that's going on. We need to be aware of it. We don't, we don't stick our heads in the sand and say it's not happening, but we don't need to put our focus there. Our focus is on Christ. Our focus is on what he's done for us. We don't have to, we don't, don't think for the moment that Satan and Jesus are brothers and there's a battle going on. Satan will be overcome with one word, with the word of the Lord, with the word of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb. He's going to be overcome. It's, read the end of Revelation and see what happens to him. It's already laid out. He knows his future, but he wants to take as many people with him as he can. And he wants to make this life for you unpeaceful, unjoyful. He wants to make it miserable. He wants to make you doubt the Lord. And you can't let that happen. You've got to trust that even if where I'm walking this morning is a result of my stupidity, that God's still with me in it, that God is still faithful. He'll walk me. He wants to walk through it with me. He wants to bring me through it. He doesn't, often we pray, Lord, get me out of this situation. He goes, no, but I want to walk through it because I'm going to teach you something in it. I'm going to show you. You're going to grow through this. You're going to be, I'm going to be able to use you more because after I get you through it, you're going to be able to minister to other people because now you've got that tag of saying, I've been there. And there is no greater tag when it comes to ministering to somebody else to have that on your life that say, I've been there. Because when someone's going through a difficult situation, if you can come alongside them and say, I've been there, I know what you're going through. That's a whole different perspective than someone who goes, well, I've never really been there. But the Bible says, both are right and both are true. But when the person can say, I've been there, I've walked in those shoes, I've endured that, God will use that mightily if you'll let him. You keep your focus on him, you keep your praise on him, you keep your worship on him. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 tells us, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Think about that. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Any reason to fear demonic activity? No, not at all. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Twice he says, he dwells in you. Who's dwelling in you? The Lord's dwelling in me. The Lord's dwelling in you. If you don't know the Lord, who knows what's dwelling in you, but you can move everything out by believing on Jesus Christ. It works that easily. Christ moves in. Everything else has to go. But don't ever forget, the same spirit that raised him from the dead is what's living inside of you. The same power that was available to Christ when he walked this earth is the same power that's available to us. So whatever you find yourself in temptation this week, whatever trial or tribulation you're going through, don't forget who's dwelling inside of you. You have the power to overcome. He's going to walk through you or walk with you through the whole thing. He might not pull you out of it, but he's going to be side by side next to you through the whole thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that the apostle Paul gives us, for the warning that he gives us in telling us to be careful, to be careful, to take heed to, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And Lord, you've helped us with temptation. You've told us that it's not about getting us out of it. It's about carrying us through it. So Lord, I pray that each person here this morning as we would face temptation in the coming perhaps hours, minutes, moment we walk out of here, Lord. Maybe even right now we're facing it. 
Pray that we'd realize you're there available to us, that you're faithful. That we're not alone, we're not the only one tempted in this way, we're not the only one that has those thoughts. That we take those thoughts captive. That we renew our minds. That we walk with you through it. That we prove your faithfulness. Lord, may we not be failing the same temptations that we failed when we first came to you. May we be growing and maturing. Lord, I thank you for the work that you're doing in each of our lives, and may that continue. Your word promises that you'll complete in the day of Christ Jesus. He has begun a good work, and you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we look forward to that completion, and we ask that you'd help us walk this week. Would we walk according to your will? Would our speech be pleasing to you? Would you protect us from the enemy? Would we take the lies of Satan and turn them to the truths of God's word? May you minister to our hearts continually. In Jesus' name, amen.